they've come up with a nickname for you. I was like, okay, what's that? It was like the Lonely Snow Leopard. And at first I thought, you know, wow, that's so cool. And I was like, why the Lonely Snow Leopard? And he simply replied, well, because you've not yet been eaten by the wolves. How do you deal with rejection? It's painful. And I knew that eventually in the long run, consistency always wins. When certain things stress me out in civilization, back in society, I, I just remember those times that I have really struggled, those times where I've faced real shitty situations, you know, where it is life and death or where it is truly uncomfortable. Mm. I just try to throw myself back there. When you're by yourself, a, like stalked by a pack of wolves, that's not a that's not that's not a euphemism by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> that's actual. That's literal. Yeah. It's not metaphorical. That's literal. Yeah. So when you're getting stalked by a pack of, you know they're over your shoulder. What the bloody hell is in your head? At that point in time, part of me, I was quite awe inspired by it because I could hear them all howling. So there was like something like, wow, I may never hear this again. Wolves howling on the other side of the mountain. And then it was only after one day I realised they're still howling and they're still the same amount of distance. I've covered about 25 miles mm. and they're still same proximity away from me. Ooh. And then after two days, that's when I was like, they are now watching. They're looking, they're, they're watching for... Because it's very rare, risk, wolves won't really take risks and attack a human. They do and they're known and there's plenty of stories. But, you know, I was kind of like, they're not going to risk. And there was me plus another guy at this point. This was on the Yangtze trek, not the Mongolia. Okay. And at this point, it was a little bit worrying because I remember the previous conversation that we had with locals and the locals spoke Tibetan and they were trying to tell us something and I didn't quite understand what they were saying. But my friend that I was with was filming it didn't know what they said, you know, said thank you, waved off, goodbye. Fast forward six months, my production team in Beijing, because we were creating a documentary on the Yangtze for National Geographic, and they reached out and said, we've found, we've come across that piece of footage and you had no idea what he was saying. I was like, no. Well, he was saying that right down that valley where you're heading, only yesterday a local was killed by a pack of wolves. We didn't know. It's on that geo. It's like it's, we filmed it, but we didn't know what they were saying. So we were like, oh, bye. And then those, those next two days we were followed. Whether it was the same pack, we do not know. But, doesn't matter, does it? I yeah. mean, ultimately, goodness me. Yeah. And, well, I mean, eight days, <laughs> mate. Eight, eight days of not talking to it, not, not seeing a soul. Mm. Are you having like a... And again, I'll say it again. I'll say it again for the third time. You seem so normal. If that was me, I'd be all kinds of fucked up. <laughs> I, mean, like, like, <laughs> I really would. But you seem so. Are you having like a, when you go for so long not talking to anybody, not seeing anybody? Are you having like an, do you, like when I'm by myself for a long time, I'll argue with myself. Right? And I'm like, oh, you idiot. Oh, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you having these, like, what's going on in your head? Like, how are you getting by each day? Yeah, I guess, yeah, you're right. I guess I You've got to be so stoic, right? You've got to be so, you so to be. mentally determined and disciplined. Yeah, you've got to wake up that morning with a clear vision and a, a clear plan. You've almost got to visualise you pitching up the tent that same evening. Whilst you're packing down the tent, you've got to picture how that day is going to go. It's going to be pleasant. You get, you're not going to be followed by any wolves. You're not going to come across anything. And you're going to... In, in 12 hours from now, you're going to be pitching up that tent closer to that next goal. Because I couldn't... 
My goal was never the completion of Mongolia. My goal was always the next community or next city because it was too big. I had to focus on all of the little yeah. checkpoints that I might come across in between. The, even the staircase a, analogy. Yeah, even if it's a well, even if it's a confirmed water source, it's like that I didn't want to look too far ahead because then that would scare me. And so I didn't look at it and think this section is going to be arid and I'm, I might not come across a single person. Um, but I guess I would wake up. I would try to talk to myself. I would sort of play music. And you're right, I didn't have... I couldn't afford the telephone, satellite phone. So it was only text only. And I think I had three texts to send per day. But some days I wouldn't. Um, and yeah, I remember eight days. And whilst I would get a little bit paranoid to think that, fucking hell, I've got... No one with me. There's no brotherhood where I can talk to other people. There's no one helping to keep me motivated. There's no one helping with the decision-making. Like, I'm following these little tracks, and sometimes it would split off to five. My GPS failed me, so I was down to map and compass. And that track is my lifeline. It's that that will lead me to my next water source. So I have to be bang on. Has to be. A lot of people think you must get bored out there all the time, but I'm being hit by different storms. There's different wildlife. There's the navigation, you know. I'm constantly, there are days definitely with that. It's like monotonous and it's really boring. But a lot of the time I'm always planning ahead. I'm always thinking what, what could go wrong, what could happen, or the next challenge, how I can overcome, because I know that this big river's coming up or that's going to happen. And, and I guess... That's what keeps me preoccupied. But I'm also thinking, I I doubt I will ever experience this again where I can cover such great distance over land and not come across a, a single human. Enjoying the experience. And so I'm well. trying to soak it up and trying to listen. And I remember at that time saying to my logistics manager before I set off, he was a local Mongolian, and I said to him, can you imagine how quiet it's going to be in the Gobi Desert mm. when I'm at that period where there's just nothingness? And he sniggered and said, there's no such thing as silence. And I was like, what do you mean there's no such thing as silence? There's silence rooms, there's all sorts. He was like, you'll realise, he says, I'm not going to tell you. If you hit that point, you'll understand what I mean and you'll try to figure it out yourself. I was like, Okay. Anyway, forgot about that conversation. And during those eight days, when I was completely out there, there was no insects, there was no breeze, as I mentioned. There was no uh, sand dunes, which caused the noise sometimes of shifting sands. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. There was nothing, complete stillness. And I remember one day there was this slightly faint, almost like a humming noise, and I could hear it. And I was like, the fuck is that? I've never heard that before. And I thought maybe it's air potentially leaking out of my water container. So I ditched my trailer. I walked off 100 metres or so and I could still hear it. And there was nothing on me. There was nothing. And I was just like, no way the penny dropped. And I was like, when you're at the point of silence, as long as you're living and your body's ticking over, you'll always hear your body ticking over. I was like, no way, is that what he meant? And I remember I got back, I was like, did you mean that? He was like, yeah. When you're at the point of silence, you'll realise that there's no such thing as silence as long as you're alive. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Ogogo Fitness. Ogogo Fitness is my brand new fitness app I'll be launching really, really soon. I've created this app because I truly want to help people. I believe everybody should have the right to exercise and be fit and be healthy. I brought this to the world to promote physical health and mental health. I've designed 60 preset seven minute workouts ranging in difficulty from round one, which is pretty easy to round 12, which is really, really challenging. As well as that, I've got my personal workout builder. I've created 50 different exercises and you have the choice 
to create your own playlist from the 50 different workouts, which gives you an option of over 80 million combinations of workouts. So from your GoGo Fitness app, you can literally choose for millions and millions and millions of workouts personalized for you and what you're training for. So head over to agogofitness.com, register your interest, and be the first to know when a GoGo Fitness is launching. I've never heard it before that. I've never heard it s since then. It was that one time mm. in the Gobi Desert of going eight days without seeing anyone. And I guess being on your own and so secluded, you become so in tuned and so connected to your own self. Yeah. And that's why you could hear that noise. Yeah. And you I think your, all of your senses at that point are heightened. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You're in survival. <clears throat> I always say it takes two weeks for you to break into your wild side. And I've experienced this time and time again with all of my expeditions and adventures. It takes two weeks. You know, you're uncomfortable. If it's wet, you don't like it. If it's dirty, you want to keep clean. If it's noisy outside, you can't sleep. If there's insects, you don't like it, you know. And eventually you become comfortable with the uncomfortable. You don't give a fuck about insects. Even the wolves, to be honest, in the distance, you get to a point where, no, you just turn wild, man. And I think we all have it. You let your beard grow out. You don't give a fuck. You'll do anything, you know? And that's cool to see. And I think it's only having faced that now a certain amount of times that yeah. when, when certain things stress me out in civilization, back in society, I, I just remember those times that I have really struggled, those times where I've faced real shitty situations you know where it is life and death or mm. where it is truly uncomfortable mm. i just try to throw myself back there and uh, that really helps me to stay calm you mentioned something earlier now i'm gonna it's like those moments right those moments of being scared anything right yeah. obviously i'm saying a different way i'm 34 at the moment and i've lived one hell of a life i could die tomorrow and i'll be Pissed off that I'm dead. <laughs> yes. But I'll be looking back and I've crammed in so much. Other than You've achieved a lot for sure. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. And I've I've just done a lot of shit. I've done a lot of cool stuff. Other than having a look at my father yet, which hopefully in, in the future for me, I've done so much. And I've lived a really rich life. Uh, and I've packed a lot in 34 years. And I don't really think life is like how long you live. I think it's all those moments that you feel good, bad, and indifferent. It's those moments when you feel it's the it's the walking out to your Olympic Games and being petrified and scared but excited. That moment is the is the I recently did a TV show recently and I had to run down a dam and I'm standing there looking down 100 meters down the dam and I'm going this is terrifying and doing it anyway. It's those moments that make yeah. life worth living. Yeah, man. And it's the same as yourself. You've done so much in such a short space of time. It's like those moments, like, and you mentioned something a minute ago, and I think you just want to say, like, you've done so much in your life and I know you've experienced those moments and well, just, just wow, wow, wow. I was going to say it earlier, yeah. but we, we, we went on. Um, so congratulations on that. And you mentioned something a minute ago, uh, like, how does, you mentioned something like when you're, on on death's door, when you yeah. think you're gonna die, you then you this this whole new side of you comes out and you're able to like make decisions better. Or if you mentioned that when you had the ability to kind of get up from underneath the your um, your the trailer, trailer, yeah, and and crack on. But only in those moments when you feel like you're about to die can you kind of like harness those things. How does people listen to this? They're not gonna go on these mad adventures and um, expeditions and almost die. How does one, in your opinion, or maybe they can't, in your opinion, how does one channel and harness that in everyday life rather than 
only when they're potentially going to die mm. to maximise their own life? I think it's picturing where they're heading if they keep doing what they're currently doing without pushing. So, for example, that time in the Gobi Desert, <laughs> I actually came across camel carcasses in the desert, like camels just dead, just there, left. Yeah. And when I was under... Like in Lion King. Like in Lion King, yeah, when like yeah, yeah, the yeah. dead elephants and stuff, and they like <laughs> make a little house within it. Yeah, that's, crazy. That's it. It's, um, and I remember just picturing what it would be like if I continued to rest under my trailer and I didn't do one of the two options that I had, which was either the evacuation or the keep walking. And then it was only when I realized I don't have the evacuation, I have to keep walking. If I don't keep getting up and doing this, what's the alternative? And then I just pictured myself as a carcass, people just driving by my body, make, maybe taking some stuff from my trailer, carrying on on horseback, I don't know. And so I think for those people who sort of aren't getting up and, and pushing or have those lazy days, if you keep having those lazy days or if you keep overthinking and overanalyzing, Fast forward five years into your future, add all of those days up, where are you going to be compared to if you get up now and you you overcome your fear or you get out of your comfort zone or you act. It could be stuff like stop snoozing on the alarm clock. Mm -hmm. It could be like stop having cheat days where you say, I'm not going to train today, I'll train harder tomorrow instead. You know, like that's fine to some extent, but if you continue doing that and you add all of that up, where, where are you in five years from now? Visualize yourself mm -hmm. compared to visualizing yourself if you do do it today mm. if you do get up if you do train if you do ach achieve whatever you want to set out to achieve on that specific day and I think that's what I do I visualize where I want to be in five years or a year from now and to break it down smaller I visualize where I wanted to be four days from now and it wasn't a carcass in the desert it was in that community ready building up my strength to push on and complete the mission in hand um Rejection. I've heard you say you've suffered lots of rejection, thousands of rejections. Yes. How do you deal with rejection? Oh, rejection is so infuriating. It is, um, it's painful. I think there's two sides of it. There is, there is a side where I do let the, let it get to me. I do get annoyed by it. I get frustrated. You know, I think, fuck, I've worked so hard. I've achieved so much to try to get this over the line, yet I still fail to get over the line. And when I say that, Mongolia, I filmed it. It didn't air. There was no TV. There's no book. It's a world first, and there's none of that. Madagascar, failed again. No book, no TV. You succeeded in the... In the, in the expeditions. In expedition, yeah, I achieved first. Yeah, yeah. But there came a point where after that Mongolia trip, I realised I can actually turn my passion into my career. People are doing it. And it's hard to find things that haven't been done in this day and age. <sighs> Everest has been climbed. The biggest river's been walked. You know, this has been mapped. That's been done. A lot of stuff has been done. So, so to find a first is very difficult to do. That's why people are going after speed records, longest to do this, quickest to do that, because everyone's done something. And then I found that first. And I was like, wow, that is like, that's a rarity. You know, maybe I can, I can do stuff off the back of it. And there was certain stuff happening. Uh, I did a TEDx talk. I, I did a UK theatre tour. I was like, okay, there's there's ways to do this. But I think that first year, I I earned five grand in twelve months. Uh, so I had to still live with my parents. I was still living with my parents. Now we're talking twenty four, twenty five. The Madagascar. I thought maybe things will change. 
things didn't change. I was still living with my parents. I was still struggling. TV was saying, no, no, you know, you're too similar to, to Bear Grylls or this guy or that guy. And I was like, fucking hell. Okay, what can I do that's that's different? How can I how can I break this? In the meantime, it's not just TV, it's book agencies. Um, that will decline you. I, it, it's magazines, it's radio, it's... And I think it, as a whole, up to this day, it's over, it's for sure over 2,000 rejections. Like definitely 2,000. This is 10 years in the making, three world first records. There's a lot of people that I reach out and I do all the groundwork myself. It's just me and my dad that work with each yeah. other. You know, and a lot of the time I've had no agencies. It's just me emailing, emailing. You know, I it was me who emailed Joe Rogan mm. and I got onto the Joe Rogan podcast. You know, I sent him 14 different emails. I'm always grinding and grafting and finding a way to make shit happen despite receiving all of these rejections. And with the Yangtze River, my last and final sort of big world first record so far, it was a case of, right, this next one, it needs to be fucking big. It needs to make waves. And I need to finally, you know, get over those rejections. But how do you get over those? But how, like, we all suffer. We're going to talk about the Yankee River because this, these, these stories are unbel- unbelievable in a sense that they sound made up because they're so unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. That's how fantastic your story yeah. is. <laughs> but, like, I want people to learn from this. We can't mm-hmm. learn from, we, we're not going to go and do the things you do. We, we can't do the things you yeah. do, but we can all get knocked down. Yeah. We do all get knocked down. We do all suffer rejection. How do we, us mere mortals who, who can't, you, you can't you know, walk the, the Gobi Desert, how how do we get up from a rejection? I think you you stay doing you. You stay focused on what you're trying to achieve. You never let anyone's know or disbelief in you phase what you're trying to achieve. That was one thing that I did, despite all the rejections. And when I say rejections, they weren't just no. They they were either you're Welsh or you're white or you're straight. You know, we're talking like crazy, crazy rejections. Things you can't change. Things I can't change. Yeah. Forget about the world first, the stories, the experiences, because you're this or you're not quite that or because this person's similar or that story's similar. You know, it's it's a no. Um, which in the boxing world, for example, it's like giving only Tyson Fury a platform and then declining Anthony Joshua, Canelo, Uzik, Frotch, you know, all of these other boxers who are big names yourself as well. It's like declining all of them and saying, no, we've already got this one boxer and one boxer will do. That's what it's like. It's like no one can, no one other than Bear Grylls can do an adventure and get TV off the back of it. It's just insane. And so I was like, I, there's, there's going to be a way. There's a way that I can really sort of maximize this and, and, and keep going. And I think it's staying dogged. It's building up your track habits. It's building up your experience. It's getting better. Mm. I think that's the one key thing. You know, after Mongolia, of course I'm going to face rejections. You know, you've only done one world, although it's a world record, you've only done one world world. You're only 24. You know, you don't have a book yet. You've only done three talks. Do 10 talks. Do two two records. You know, do bigger, do better. And keep, uh, but also following your passion. So I didn't continue doing this because I wanted to set an example or prove a point. I did it because I loved what I was doing. And I knew that eventually in the long run, consistency always wins. And I had to tell myself that every day. And it's only now I'm really starting to see the benefits. Now it's shifted and I'm in a different place. I'll still face diff- 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 uh, difficult times and rejection, but I, it, in no way near as difficult as it was with Mongolia, with Madagascar, with the Yangtze. 
you know, even with the Yangtze, I was still declined by so many brands, radio by, you know, brands didn't even want to associate because they thought I could die out there. Cool. You know, even with the track habit of achieving records in the desert, in the jungle. It's, uh, so I think it's remaining fucking dogged, staying disciplined, going at it no matter what, and going back to how I, what I first said with Mongolia is two things, just because no one's found a way to do something doesn't mean it, it, doesn't mean it can't be done. And the second is just because no one else sees it for you doesn't mean you can't see it for yourself. Yeah. You know, so I always saw it for myself and I always had that internal fire. And so instead of receiving a rejection and then feeling sorry for myself and coming up with a different plan, because sometimes I did, sometimes I did think, you know, maybe I, I need to go back to scuba diving or the fish and chip shop or, or whatever. But uh, there were others, there was another side of me who was just, I know, get that wild man the from wild the Gobi man. Desert back inside. He wouldn't stop and rest mm. under the trailer and, and, and bitch and whine. He would get up and he would keep fucking going until he achieved what he set out to. So I think you've got to fucking have that, you know. Mate, I want to get up and put my head through a wall. <laughs> Cash, we just go and do something crazy. I'm so pumped right now. Love it. Honestly, mate, like the one, and we've all got a wild man or wild woman inside us, we do you have, think? Yeah, 100%. We've just got to push ourselves to find it. Yeah, yeah, it's covered in a layer of dust. I think we've all got what it takes. It's just sometimes you're not pushed to that capacity where you realise you've got what it takes, you know? But you have, and I hope no one is pushed to that level, but if they are... Don't forget that you've got it. Nice to know that he or she is in there somewhere, yeah. lying dormant, waiting to be woke, awoken. Yeah. yeah. Oof, mate, let's talk about some of your challenges, right? Some of your, some of your expeditions you've done. You've done so much. This is so much. We could cut. We could have cut this podcast an hour ago, <laughs> mate. And I'd have left feeling so happy because you've, you've sprinkled so many oh, nuggets and inspiration. Like this is unbelievable. And what I like about your story is so relatable. In the sense that, no, 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 we can't know how hot it is. When you say it was 40 degrees in the Gobi Desert and you're covered then, I've seen you with pictures with the sunglasses on and then and, and the, the mask across your face, yeah. the scarf across your face. Yeah. We can't experience that. When you say, when you say oh, it's really hot, it's a seek refuge underneath the trailer, we can appreciate how hot it is. We've all been hot before, yeah. but we can't appreciate the heat, the true heat. You know, We can't appreciate the silence. But... What I love about your story is it's so relatable that we can all understand what you're saying and we can all take that to staircase, the 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 hundred meters rest. Hundred we can all learn from that and it's yeah. so relatable and it's just you're so giving and and kind for sharing your experiences for the betterment of, of us. And I on behalf of the world <laughs> <laughs> I'm a spokesman for the world from saying thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate that. No, and there's still there's still so much to talk yeah. about. So you've um Mongolia. You were dubbed by the locals as the the lonely snow leopard. Yeah. That's so cool, man. <laughs> it's cool. That's isn't cool. It? Have you got a tattoo of that? I haven't. You know, it did cross my mind at the end of it, but I was like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. That's such and a cool The Lonely Snow Leopard. I love that. I saw it on your Wikipedia page and thought. That's the coolest moniker yeah. ever given and authentic as well. Yeah, yeah. And that came, so, with, you know, with that, as I said, I didn't, I didn't have any money. I didn't PR this. There was no marketing team. There was no agency. There was nothing. It was just the capital city, Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. They got word from my logistics manager and that kept spreading. There was more news articles, more um, TV um, pieces. And he said, he called me, I think it was my last week at the Altai Mountains. I had signal. I, I made it to like a small town. And he said, uh, oh, the locals are aware of what you're doing. I was like, no way, really. And he's like, yeah, they, they've come up with a nickname for you. I was like, okay, what's that? He was like, the lonely snow leopard. 
And at first I thought, you know, wow, that's so cool. And I was like, why the lonely snow leopard? And he simply replied, well, because you've not yet been eaten by the wolves. And the snow leopard is the only other predator to be left alone by the wolves. Oh, that's even cooler now. Yeah, right. I just thought because you're white. And you're on your own all the time. That's yeah. so cool. No, it was because the snow leopard is the only other predator that the wolves don't go after. Yeah. But I was scared because I was still in the Altai Mountains. So I was like, don't jinx me. I've still got to get out of the mountains, you know? <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it was a uh, yeah, cool, cool name for sure. Mm. Madagascar. Um, Madagascar, this was. What was brutal. that about, mate? This was brutal. The jungle. You know, it took 155 days to cross the island of Madagascar. So how long, so in terms of time, how long was was, was Cambodia? Uh, oh, sorry, Mongolia, Mon- sorry. Mongolia was 78 days, 1,500 miles. Now, Mad- Madagascar is only 100 miles longer. It, it was 1,600 miles, but almost doubled the duration, <sighs> being 155 days. Because you're in the jungle and obstacles and challenges. Yeah, so this was a world first to walk the entire length of the island via the interior, where a lot of it is forest, is jungle, but also summits in the eight highest mountains along the way. You've got this mountain ridge that almost lies central east of the island, almost the entire length. So the idea was to stay on that mountain ridge from the most southern tip to the most northern tip. And how do people know that you don't cheat? How can you just go, go you know, let's say you've gone over the first five mountains and think, yeah. This one's a bit big. I just go around the side. Yeah. How do people know you don't do that? So you've got a, a tracking device. And so this tracking device sends off a, a little ping every five uh, minutes to the satellite. And this little beacon has your your altitude, your time, your duration, but most importantly, your speed. And so if I, for example, jumped on the back end of a bicycle, you, you've been tagged. Yeah. It's got you. And it's funny, we're cutting ahead here, but with the Yangtze, it was a whole year, 352 days. It took Guinness Book of Records over two and a half months to verify because they went through every five minutes, 24-7 for 352 days. Every beacon sent to make sure that my speed wasn't... A, and they also check any tributaries that I cross or the river... I can't use the flow of the river, otherwise I'd be disqualified. And if can't I jump in river and let the river log log take it, it can't. And if it flows, let's say fifty meters, I have to walk back on myself to cover that distance that the flow of the river um, took me. So I'd have to walk back on myself only a little bit, hundred meters. So the beacon ping, it wouldn't be a hundred; it'd be five meters, uh, five minutes effectively, because it pings off every five minutes, um, and that's how which is good, which is really good. I wanted that. Yeah, because um, everyone but I didn't, knows you've done exactly Yeah, I wanted that. that, but I didn't need it. I'm just so ruthless with myself. Of course. I think even without the device, I would have cheated myself and I wouldn't been able to live knowing I fucking didn't do that. You'd always know, wouldn't you? I will, and that's the worst. That, I feel, is the worst. If you cheat yourself, I don't know, it just yeah. doesn't, I wouldn't sit here comfortably with the achievements course, and experience yeah. had I not have done it legitimately you know yeah. my old boxing coach Barry O'Connell who's a legend used to say nice. integrity yeah. is doing the right thing when nobody's watching love it yeah absolutely bang on spot on yeah yeah so you did Madagascar yeah tell me about, about that because that's some yeah. stories and then, so just so people know that you did the um, you did uh, Mongolia yep. Madagascar uh, the Yangtze River yeah 
which is the big long one. And we've done a fourth one as well that we'll come on to at the end. Yes. And then we'll round up with some more life lessons from the, the great Ash Dykes. And then, mate, hopefully have you back on like numerous yeah, times because this is this has been one of the most enjoyable, I don't know how long I've been talking for, but enjoyable last hour and a bit of my entire life. Oh, I'm really appreciate that. It's been really great fun. I've been, um, and there's still so much more to talk about, but yeah. someone's sitting there ready to go and, as I said, put my head through a wall or, or go and do something unbelievable because this is just this is exactly why I wanted to do this podcast I'm still I've still got remnants of of bitterness and and frustration from my own boxing career that I'm trying to shed and it's hearing these stories other people's great comeback stories enables me to kind of shed that because I know that's not good for me Mm. my heart my soul and my life yeah and yeah, this is this is amazing for me, mate. So oh, selfishly, thank you so much. Yeah, love it. No, appreciate that. And yeah, fuck, Madagascar gets even crazier, for sure. Go. <laughs> 155 days, 1,600 miles. And with this, honestly, out of the 155-day trek, I, I don't think there was a day where it was just a, a pleasant day's trek. There was, whilst Mongolia was very mentally draining, you know, lots of fear, held a lot of diet. I, I was scared. I won't act like the hero and say, yeah, I smashed it. I was fucking shit scared. Very scared of the Mongolia trek. But I think that's 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 normal. No, no. Yeah. That's, it would be weird not to be scared. Yeah, the I fact so. And what I like about you as well, Ash, is like, you openly admit, I was scared, but I did it anyway. Yeah. That's what courage is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And with Madagascar, that was more physical. It was, yeah, just to breeze over some challenges. I had to avoid the bandits of South Madagascar. I was held up at at gunpoint by the military. I contracted the deadliest strain of malaria and reached a nearby city a few hours before potentially slipping into a coma. I was bitten by uh, spiders, which then started to get infected. I was had my blood sucked by leeches and most nights at the two, three weeks up at jungles up north, I'd get in my tent, take off my shirt and I'd have to pull six, seven leeches and flick them out the tent. Um, I had to cross crocodile-infested rivers, especially up north. I almost lost my... Okay, so let's... I mean, there's so much... <laughs> there's, there's lots, so much, isn't there? So, much. so that's why, out of all of the days, there just wasn't a day where it was like, oh, that was a decent hike. So let's just focus on one part of that because there's so much. <laughs> it's a lot. So there's a river and you say you got to get across the river to get up there to do the next mountain and the next thing the next thing but you got to get across this river and you know full well there's a crocodile in there swimming around waiting for a little Welshman the seventh coolest Welshman in the world <laughs> to jump in the water and he wants to snap your legs off um, thought process mindset what is going through your head right there and how do you just do it? <laughs> well, I think what's even creepier than that is you don't know if there's crocodiles in those rivers or not. Oh. You know, because you, you can't see it. The rivers are murky. And so there could be a dozen. They're right like, there. Or there might not be any. Yeah. Do you risk, like there's crocodiles in Madagascar, but in the specific river that you're looking to cross, are there any in that river right now? Or are there not? Do you risk it or do you not? And so there's three ways to cross crocodile-infested rivers. If you ever cross where there's locals, because they know where the crocodiles' to, um, territory is, they cross it every day. It's no big deal. That's their home. If there's no locals and you're in the wild, like I was, you cross where there's white water or rapids, because the crocs don't like to have their territory near fast-flowing water. And the third option is you cross by building yourself a raft using bamboo 
and bamboo leaves that takes three to four hours yeah. just to get over this 50 metre, sometimes smaller, river to the other side. And there were a few occasions where we had to take that third option. Who's we? You often say we. Who's we? Yeah, so with Madagascar, the beauty with this, this wasn't solo and unsupported. I had a guide for the most southern section who knows the south, a guide for the middle section, and then a guide who knows the jungles up north. So three separate guides on these different occasions. And that was a, that was the beauty. You know, with Mongolia, as much as I loved it and I loved the locals, they were incredible, super hospitable. There were times that I didn't come across locals for days. And when I did, there, were, there was smiling, there was gestures. They let me stay in their gur. There was writing in the sand, drawing pictures, all What's of that. What's a gur? A gur, sorry, is their white felt tent, just living out there in the wild and their white felt tent. Okay. And, and I thought, you know, on my next trip being in Madagascar... I hope to come across more locals. That's why I started traveling in the first place. I love meeting new people, understanding the local culture, their way, their traditions. And I also thought it would be nice to do it with a guide who was able to translate so that I get a good understanding of the people without just smiling and writing in sand and, you know. And so that was the beauty of Madagascar. I really got to know the locals, you know, because I had the guides with me. And those guides turned into my Malagasy brothers. They went through thick and thin. I still keep in touch with them to this day. Um... So if you go through something so intimate with somebody, you, you're you bound to just get close to them. And... Yeah. Yeah, because <sighs> you're kind of reliant. You know, when we put together the the raft, your life is in their hands, really, because you're you're doing your knots, making sure it's it's strapped together. They're doing theirs. They don't need to check mine. I, I shouldn't need to check theirs. So, you know, you're all like that trust and loyalty goes into each other's hands. And you have to, I always say, and I, I think this is good for teamwork and you'll probably know, um, know this as well but you know when I was out there especially up north when I was in the jungle this was potentially the most difficult other than the malaria down south but the jungle it was machete in hand we were hacking through the jungle we would go over 16 hours of ha hacking and we would cover one mile if we were lucky two miles we were hunting we were gathering but there were four of us there was me and my guide Max and then there was also this a photographer called Suzanne. She was hardcore. She was like a Lara Croft. She joined me for a few weeks and she bought a porter named Lever, who was Malagasy. And so there was four of us. And what I noticed that was different from my solo trip in Mongolia to Madagascar is on my solo trip, it was just me and my mindset. And I'm a positive guy. I can wake up. Shit could be against me. I could be, have, be against all of the odds. I would still be smiling, thinking, fucking hell, I've got this. Whereas now other people's lives are on my expedition, their thoughts, their moods, their emotions, sometimes they're sensitive, sometimes they're hungry, sometimes they're thirsty, sometimes they're bleeding and they're crying, sometimes they're, you know, losing hope because we're stuck, sometimes lost in the jungle. And it was at that point I had to really take sort of a leadership role. But not only that, I found that we were four separate individual beating hearts with our own emotions, our own worries and doubts. And by the time our jungle experience came to an end three, four weeks later by the, by the time we had said bye. What I noticed is we had all formed as one power beating heart through that. We, we became so in sync with one another that it was hard not to see them as my brother and sister out there, you know, because we went through thick and thin. We saw each other at our most vulnerable points. We saw each other what it's like to be suffering with dehydration from starvation, from deep sleep deprivation. Suzanne, bless her, fell so many times, you know, bamboo shards stabbing her, leeches on her face, she was dripping with blood. And, you know, she got through that and she got through probably a changed 
a changed person. And it was that, wow, you know what? That's a, it was just a powerful message that I think we all have to, when you're working as a team, I think it's the lowest of lows that can build the strongest of bonds, you know? Yeah. And we really did face that out there. When you're with a team or by yourself, I'm, when you're talking, telling your unbelievable story, obviously I'm thinking about my story and I'm yeah. sure people listening to this will be thinking about their stories. Yeah. Because as I said earlier, you're telling your story, sharing it with us, so the betterment for our lives. I'm thinking about my, my Olympic journey, my professional my professional boxing career, Jamie, when I've suffered injuries and there's been times where I was always I was very positive, I'm definitely going to box again once yeah. I hurt my eye. I'm definitely going to box. And um, But there were times I'd, I'd, have, I'd have a little cry. And I'm not really a cry, but it meant yeah. so much to me that I'd have a little cry and I'd think, but what if I don't? I might not. And those doubts would creep in and when they'd live in my head for a bit, yeah. then it's my job to kick them out. <laughs> Did you ever like, again, on your own or with the team, ever like cry and be sad and think, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. There was a time in Mongolia when my lips were all blistered and chapped because I was at high altitude and it was cold and I felt really vulnerable and I was only three weeks into this trip and it was freezing, minus 15, minus 20, snow blizzards. And I remember my lips became so chapped that in the morning I would need to pull them apart to open them and then I would drink from my ration pack which was porridge and I remember there'd be this slurp of pus and blood into my ration pack I was just really dry blisters toenails falling off and I remember I came across this community it was a Kazakh family and they invited me and they saw me from a distance I didn't even clock them but they saw me far from a distance trying to set up my tent I was battling the wind and you know there wasn't anyone there to help me set I was just trying my best to set it up and this guy came down fully dressed fully cloaked black everything, black boots, gloves, you know, hat, it was freezing. And he he said, like, you pointed to his heart because he couldn't speak English, we couldn't communicate. And I got what he said and then I rocked up, um, followed him, he helped me with the trailer. It was a few hundred metres away and I just remember being inside and I remember they had nothing. I remember being cold and the lady had this sort of, this kettle and a tin tub. And I jumped in this tin tub because she said, jump in, you know, with, with my boxer shorts on, crouched down and she's above me pouring this warm, sort of lukewarm water. And you've got this small daughter, two sons, this old lady who's the, the mum sort of, and I'm just washing and I like, looking out, hearing the howling. And I think it was only the next day where I left and I was back in the extremes. They were so incredibly warm and welcoming, very hospitable. I left and I was back in the elements. I was blasted. My lips were still bleeding. And it was at the point I didn't realise how many days or weeks I would go again before I come across uh, another family like that. And I didn't even know if I would make it to the, to the next community. And I remember the wind pelting me and I just looking out to wild wilderness. And I felt so fucking vulnerable with my walking poles, walking up the mountain and... I think it's at that time it got to me and I had a little cry walking up that mountain thinking, what a nice family, what amazing locals, just the, the warmness of it. And, you know, I was drinking Kazakh chai, the food that they gave me. And then I was now back and I had to switch that soft side off because now I needed that wild side again. 
but it, it took took a, a bit to balance that, especially the first few weeks, you know, when you receive such, and you just don't know, am, am I going to be attacked by by wolves? Am I going to make this journey? Are they the last people you're ever going to see? Yeah, and it's those little things that, you know, I come back, and this again is a good message for the audience, I come back to civilization, and I just realise how, how good we've got it, how convenient everything is, you know, and to see them struggle up there, how they take a bath, how they have to make the fire to boil the water. We just flick on a kettle. We can take a shower, flick on the kettle. Bang, bang, it's all done. Toast, put stuff in the oven. And they're just out here grinding their living. So it's hard to come off an expedition and be arrogant once you've been so humbled. You think you're hard going through those extremes. They live there, you know? Mm. So that's always special coming back. They're there still to this day in those hardcore elements. You might be hardcore walking through that, you know, whilst the wolves are stalking you, but they live there. They do this every single day. So you come back with a new appreciation of life. And I guess when I was out there in the mountains, I really appreciated even that, what they had was classed as convenient and comfortable, mm. even though it's hardcore, but compared to what I was facing, just shelter, having a roof, warm water, you know, cup of tea, the basics in life, and I was happy. I mean, that's so kind. You could have been a raging lunatic. You could have been a, a machete-wielding <laughs> yeah. lunatic. And yeah. they let you into the house and they, they fed you and they clothed you. They let you take a bath in the little tin yeah. bath. And and vice versa. They could have been cannibals. Yeah. They could have been lunatic. And you, that's just, it's just nice hearing that you're never going to, I bet you don't know their names. Or, or you can go, that's just so nice. People yeah. helping each other. Yeah. Um, Mate, uh, yeah, big faith in humanity. I've got, I've got a lot of trust. Sometimes that has come back to bite me. Yeah, but the more times that it'll come back to bite me is in the corporate world when I'm back here in in society, rather than out there in the wild when you yeah. think you should be on edge more, yeah. when you think you should fear people more. It's actually sometimes coming back to the to the big cities. That's really interesting, isn't it? Right, a lot of lessons in that. Yeah, um, China. China. Talk about China. Yes. Um, this one was a big one. <laughs> this one. <laughs> the other one, the other ones can walk to the park, but this one, wow, man. Yeah, this was a 4,000 mile trip. This was the longest river to run through a single country, third longest in the world. There's not much difference between the Amazon, the Nile, and the Yangtze, except people are really unfamiliar with the Yangtze River. And when they think of China, they think of the cities Chongqing, Beijing. Chengdu, Shanghai, Hong Kong, you know, they don't think the far west, Qinghai, Sichuan, Tibet, wild places where you've still got bears, where you've still got wolves. So when you say wild, explain bears and wolves in primitive. Yeah, wintertime it can drop to minus 40 degrees Celsius. You've got snow blizzards. Uh, you think of the source of the Yangtze River, you don't think same Ever, uh, same altitude as Mount Everest base camp. Is it really? It's over five thousand one hundred meters. I went to a little 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 segue. Yeah, a box in in Beijing mm. in two thousand and seven November in the Olympic yes. test event. Right, and in my head, China was hot. <laughs> okay, yeah, so yeah. This yeah. is before like Google was so like on your phone and easy to like. Yeah. And I took all shorts and t-shirts and vests. I got there freezing cold. Yes, <laughs> I was like, brutal. oh, this this could be cold as well. I don't know why I thought it was hot. Yeah. So, um, yeah, minus, I mean, it's a really shit story, but yeah. My, so, so you're right though. Yeah, you think of China. You think mm. of heat, humidity. Mm. Yeah, no, Didn't, it can drop. Beijing itself, that can drop. What, minus, I could be wrong, but I think minus 10, minus 15. 
it drops too, maybe even more so. And it's that dry cold, so it's mm. painful, you know. Mm, cold, cold. But yeah, um, so yeah, four thousand miles. Four thousand miles. It took three hundred and fifty-two days. So, so um, to four thousand miles, I'm just seeing in my head a giant four, a comma zero zero zero. So just so I can work out just how vast of a distance that is, what is four thousand miles? I think four thousand miles would be from London to. Istanbul to <sighs> wow so easily the whole length of of Europe yeah 4,000 miles is yeah it's a it's a big distance so on an airplane that's like five out four and a half hours yes Turkey, yeah? yeah so when airplanes go real fast yeah uh, a man walking across dangerous terrain not quite so fast yeah yeah exactly and I remember actually arriving into China into Beijing getting set up with my production team. So, so just uh, you fly in, fly into Beijing, right? Yeah. From, fly in. Then when you when you get off the airplane, because I always hear about like, oh, do this. But just to get there, so you're like, oh, bye mom, bye dad, I'm off, see you later. I might never see you again. Um, you obviously kiss your parents goodbye, like you may never see him again, right? Which is a very realistic opportunity, um, possibility. <laughs> yes and no. Or you're I, quite matter of fact about it. Yeah. I um, Again, it's not like my first adventures where I was really reckless, now it's, although there are uncertainties and anything can, can, can happen, it's all about looking at every single possible obstacle, every single challenge that you might face, even the most ridiculous ones that are really unlikely to happen. I picture it happening and I study, I research how I can possibly overcome that challenge. Mm. So I look at all angles up to a point that even Madagascar, when I caught malaria, it was no surprise. Even though I tried to prevent it and I was taking my anti-malarial, it was a case of I didn't freak. I didn't go into shock, into that shock of capture, fight or flight. And I really dealt with it calmly and maybe that's why I was able to survive or continue hiking with the deadliest strain of malaria. So everything that I look at, I look at from a point of, I knew this could happen. It hasn't come as a shock where now I'm going to panic. It, it, it's happened and I, I now need to overcome it. Yeah. Well, but then my dad, my mum and dad, they did fly out to Beijing. You know, there was a big sort of expensive, luxurious event to launch the expedition in China. This Who was, pays for that? <laughs> this was a sponsor, a Switzerland uh, sponsor um, and a water-to-go filtration bottle sponsor that combined forces and they threw it. It was sort of, you know, it was a big event. It was on a cruise going along um, Pudong River in Shanghai, with the skyline behind us. And I remember that there were some logistics team there and they were talking about all the dangers and how people go missing in the West due to sensitivities, political reasons about military base camps, about they'll find any excuse, oh, the man disappeared in the mountains when you're locked up in prison. And they were saying that in front of my parents. And my dad's part of the business. He's part of the whole limited company. You know, I work closely with him. And my mum is part of it too, in terms of, you know, she's been there whilst me and my dad have always been grinding, looking into these expeditions and uh, the business side of it as well. But she doesn't necessarily need to hear all of the drastic things that can go wrong. She's already going to have 352 sleepless nights when I'm out there walking the 4,000 mile route. And so she, that did draw her to tears and that wasn't nice to see. They didn't need to address all of those dangers. Um... But I knew all of those dangers. I don't think she realised I knew. And I remember, you know, one of my proudest moments, I don't think I've mentioned this on a podcast, but one of my proudest moments actually was when she was crying, 
when she was, and she's a hard mum. She's, you know, she's pretty hardcore. I remember I, I hugged her and I was there saying, every, this was, I was saying bye. She was about to board the plane, go back to the UK and I was about to board the plane and head towards the source of the Yangtze, which was already quite a mission to do. And I whispered, I said, look, despite all of these people saying all, everything that can go wrong, even the locals and the logistics and, you know, the mishaps and the military base camps, I said, it's not something I haven't heard. I know everything that they're saying. It's old news. I said, and I was told all of this and then some with Madagascar. I was told all of the same and then some again with Mongolia. I said, I promise you, I will cross the finish line here in the same city, Shanghai. I'll be hugging you at the finish line and I, and I will whisper in your ear then, I told you I would do it. And fast forward a year later, I was where the Yangtze River pours into the East China Sea in Shanghai, hugged my mum. It's actually caught on camera as well. And I whispered it in her ear. I told you I would do it. Uh-huh. That was the best. I bet. Because I had overcome all of those trials and tribulations. I'd had 10 of 16 different members that joined for different segments of the trip, be evacuated, be abandoned, scared of the uh, the wildlife, altitude sickness on oxygen tanks, um, uh, emergency flown back down to... Uh, the city of Beijing, you know, back down to lower altitude, and I was still going, grinding along this Yangtze River bank until all the way, to, all the way to the end, made it alive, made it safe, and there wasn't any new challenge that happened that I didn't anticipate, you know. So I put down to. May a lot of people will say a lot of luck. Maybe there's an element of that, but I, I do say it's really good planning, hundred percent, really good training. And also you make your own luck. Yeah, it's true. You make your own luck. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. Your mum is obviously so proud of you. Yeah. Uh, as is your dad. As am mine. I've known only for two hours. <laughs> wow. Um, so when you're away for a year. Yes. Right? So a year on your own, right? Basically, obviously, you've got some people with you and stuff. And- yeah, I've got people. And then, you know, the, the first sort of six months of the expedition is, is very wild, very extreme. Um, it got to a point where people were joining me and their lives were at stake that I got rid of them and I put a whole close down on the trip and it's, it's interesting because because I've been doing these expeditions back to back there's only ever been one to two years I kind of forget how much I've learned and experienced and it's like yourself it's like an athlete it's like you remember the journey but you don't really understand how good you've gotten until a beginner joins you and then you're like, oh shit, yeah, you have progressed immensely as a boxer, you know? Because in boxing, when you get in, in any sport, especially boxing, you get punched in the face. Yeah. When you get better, you spar and you fight people that are better than you. So you're still getting punched in the head the same amount of times when yeah. you're 12. But when you spar or fight somebody better, like, not as good as you, you're like, oh no, I am good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like that. So I, that was a reckless lesson that I learned to just stop allowing anyone to join me. When I thought it was safe, like my UK photographer flew out from the UK to China, all the way to then West China. I think it was like a 34-hour trip, something ridiculous, all in all. Um, and he was supposed to join me for three weeks, which I was super excited about because right then and there I was on my own for quite a while. And it was in the West of China and he lasted six hours on day number one before he was sent back to the UK due to a landslide that he couldn't overcome. And I gave him two clear options, both very tricky, and if you miss your footing, you're, you're done. And there's no way around it. If you go around it, add an extra week and a week to a year already. It's it's you don't want. It's about minimising the time, not extending the time, to just so uh, that you can allow someone to join you for a little bit longer. And I gave him those two options. I said, 
look at option B, look at option B, uh, A. I'm going to leave you for 10, 15 minutes. Get rid of all your ego, all of your pride. There's none of this out here. It's life and death. It's not winning or losing. And I want you to come back to me because I don't know your capabilities or your abilities. And I need you to be upfront and honest and let me know if you feel comfortable and confident enough to overcome this landslide. And I left him. Um, 10, 15 minutes went by and he came back and I was... I was willing to go with whatever decision he made was the right decision. But I said, if you make the wrong decision and you decide to join me and then halfway across this landslide, which is super steep and rocks are still falling, um, you can't then say, I need to turn back. It might be too tricky to turn back. So you need to give me a definite decision. And he did. And he says, "I'm yeah, I don't feel I've not done this before. I'm not going to do it. I, I've got a wife and kid at home. It's not worth the risk. I was like, you're, you're bang on. You know, let's get you back to this city. And uh, and I did. And we sent him back home. And it was then and there. I was like, yeah, that's kind of like me trying to dabble in his industry as a professional photographer. It's more than dabbling, isn't it? Like doing like doing, yeah. like doing what he could have done is seriously dangerous. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. oof. Yeah. Oof. And I saw it time and time again. And people were joining me and they were being evacuated. People were joining me and they were abandoned. People joined me knowing full well there are bears and wolves. Yet there would be a local that said that, oh, we saw a bear here only last, last night. Are you sure you want to camp here? And psychologically, that, that's enough to ruin them. That was it. They were done. Film crew gone. Left me with a horse. The horse was there to carry their kit because we're at a section where you can't go by road. There's no when people tracks. leave you, how does it make you feel? Do you feel, does that kind of solidify your thoughts of feeling like, no, you are, you are, you are the wild man? Or do you feel a bit abandoned Then you could have done with the support? I think I'm really tested and challenged when that happens because I feel uncomfortable when people leave me. Especially the, the West of China did something to me that other expeditions hadn't done before. It had made me feel vulnerable, even if I did have people with me. And I think it was the sense of the altitude, the isolation and the wildlife. There was just something about going out there with a healthy mindset of if you leave the bears alone, the bears will leave you alone. That Western mindset. And then the locals who deal with it every day say, you've got that wrong, mate. You know, the bears, if they're hungry, they'll eat you. You're just on the, if they see you in the distance, if they're roaming down the valley and they see some someone and they're hungry, you're on the menu. They want calories and you're here at the wrong season because I was delayed two and a half months. And so by starting when I did, it meant that the the bears were now slowly coming off the mountains, searching for extra food, extra calories before they go into torpor, which is their version of hibernation. And that meant that they were actively going into communities and they were killing people. And at first I was in disbelief, like the locals are telling me, but the locals could also be exaggerating. But they would back it up with photos and videos. Some videos I kept, some photos I deleted because they the, the negative energy on my phone, it creeped me out. Yeah. It'd be like huts, families killed. Mm. A man, a big fella, mauled to death and just his face, just from the picture, the scratch marks, the... He had been mauled and I was just like, I can't have that on my phone. Mm. Um, but some videos I did come back with and I did share. But uh, it's when that happens, you just kind of like, oof, I don't like this. And then when team members ditch you, you're, you feel it even more so. You know that there isn't safety in numbers anymore. And I remember just being loud, being present, making sure that if there's any bears, hopefully they hear me and will run away, if anything. Um, because a lot of the attacks happen where you stroll upon a bear close proximity 
and it panics because it's scared that it's just seen you and it, it, then it will attack you. Okay. And so I was kind of like, what do I do? Do I make noise to make them, you know, wary that my that I'm here, that, I'm, that my presence is here and they might run away? Or is that also contradictory? Do they see me and they're like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm hungry, yeah, goodness me. And this is, you mentioned earlier, but the decision making. Yeah. You're making decisions that... That, you, that you're not able to run by anyone. And I remember having my UK team and my uh, Beijing team on the phone saying, abandon the trip. You started too late in the season. You've had too many people um, evacuate. Start again next year. You'll learn more Mandarin. You'll become more fluent in Mandarin. Um, you'll be better prepared. We'll get you the right team. We'll document everything at the, the year lead up. And at that point, thanks to Mongolia and Madagascar, I knew I had one at talk. I knew my experience. I didn't need anyone at that point to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. You know, I felt it. I was very much in tune. Uh, there was just a bit wary with the with the bears. Not so much with the wolves. And I decided, I said, look, I will keep the team safe. And no one died on my watch. Everyone was fine. Everyone that was evacuated were, were evacuated safely. But I do m- remember saying that um, I will get us off the mountain before the true winter season. We face minus 20, but it drops to minus 40. And I'll avoid the bears. I'll avoid the wolves. When is that cold? Can you notice a difference? Is, is there like is there a level of cold where you're just cold now? Like another minus five, minus ten, not making a difference. You can, yeah, you can actually okay. notice, yeah, okay. you can notice the difference. And I remember noticing it from minus ten to minus twenty. And minus twenty, it got to a point where I couldn't set up the tent by myself, and nor could my guide. We would have to take it in turns. It got that bad. He would have to spend like sixty seconds working before his hands were gone and then he's worn it and then I continue and then he continues until it's up and everything's like frozen as well the tent work even the poles and uh, the tent isn't as elasticated so when you're trying to get it in that fast loophole in that final loophole it's too difficult and you don't have the strength and just cooking things and starting fire it's just it's it's very tricky what's the hardest bit all these mad things you do what is the hardest bit what's the bit where you got like in boxing the hardest thing is losing weight uh, get boarding yourself down to that way. The dehydration when you talk about your lips being stuck together. I've been there. You obviously understand when you wake up in the morning and you use your tongue to touch the inside of your your, your cheeks. It's gravel. It's just hard yeah. when you're that severely dehydrated. Right. Yeah. And being tired and and, and and dehydrated and hungry and going out and training and sparring and getting hit in the head. Yeah. You dehydrated. It hurts. You like your legs wobble way more than you would do when you're fit. So right. For me, Bokdod, and I didn't really enjoy that. I didn't really, I never enjoyed losing weight. I enjoyed the discipline, yeah, and 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 the sacrifice, and I enjoyed knowing the the beast. I call it. You call it the wild man. I'm the beast. I, nice. I have a beast inside me. that comes out. I I enjoy that, but some things I don't enjoy. I didn't mm. enjoy about boxing. Although ultimately, you do it to the box, which I, which I loved. Yeah, to perform on fight night. What bits and this your challenges, your expedition? They sound un, They sound unreal and. I'm here going, well, I want to go on one with you. A small one, maybe. Maybe yeah. UK-based. Nice. I desperately want to do one with you at some yeah. point. Um, but what bits do you hate? Do you go, oh, fucking this bit? Oh. I, think, I think it's the magnitude of, for example, doing it every single day. Madagascar, for example, hunting and gathering, toenails falling off, bleeding out, from leeches, uh, spiders. Again, you're saying things, you're throwing things away. Toenails falling off. Yeah. Toenails falling off. You know, it, a whole toenail just falling off. Oh, multiple. Gone. May. So I think it's 
It's being restricted of all of the comfort time. So, you know, when people go out and they do like marathons in this country or that country, and sometimes they're either followed by a van which has the masseuse or they'll have hotels where they can rest at. Picture a marathon a day, machete in hand. You've got to hunt your own food. You've got to climb trees and gather your own resources. You've got to maybe build your own shelter build your own raft to get across the river. And then at night time, during the midst of a snow blizzard, a cyclone or a desert stone, you are there in your tent whilst it's blowing a gale, sorting out your toenails, your blisters, your chapped lips. You're not eating that night. You're saying you that. can't start a fire. And then the next day, you've got to go again and again and again and again. And I think it's that, that lack of comfort, lack of team, lack of everything, you're just vulnerable to the elements and it does what the fuck it wants to do. And it's just a case of how much will it break you until you pack it in. You said at the beginning, imagine, boom, 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 boom. You said 12 things that people just can't imagine. I can't imagine losing a toenail. I, I, I can't. It's <laughs> really bad. Yeah. And I know it's only a small thing amongst your whole thing, but losing a toenail for me would be really annoying because mm. you put your socks on, your socks stick to your toe, that stings. Painful, man. Yeah, and then you've got... With all your blisters combined, you know, it's, it's, it's agony. And you've got blisters on your hand mm-hmm. because you're hacking for 12 to 16 hours yeah. with a machete. Yeah. So your hand isn't even functioning and then you try to start a fire and it, it, it's just... It's just brutal. So why do you do it? Is it something that you're running from? Is it something that you're running towards? Do you want? Do you do this because it gives you a sense of significance? Do you mm-hmm. do this because there's easier way to earn a living? Yeah. <laughs> obviously, obviously. So why do you do it? You know what? I think it started very organically and in a way accidental. I think it started with me wanting to test myself, see my capabilities, learn my own mindset and physical attributes, but also my love and passion for the world, for the people that live in there, uh, that live in it. You know, the curiosity aspect, the wanting to, to travel and to explore new places. And I think another side is if I want to go out and explore these places, do it the hard way. You know, if there's roads and cars and bikes, there's, you know, there's people, there's water, there's food, there's safety. In a way, they always say the world's a small place, right? And I disagree. I think the world's a big place. It's only ever small if you're on the usual tracks as everyone else. And so I guess for me, in my mind, the world's a big place and it's a shame not to not to see it. You get this one life and it's a shame not to see what you're capable of. And a life is full of lessons. And I think the hardest lessons or the greatest lessons you learn is also through adversity. And adversity isn't necessarily always a good thing. But I think what comes with the lowest lows is is the highest highs. And so I think it's a mix of absolutely everything. And now I'm really starting to hit that point of my career where I don't have to risk my life as much and the rewards are greater. You know, like this latest trip following the Great Wall of China, this was a huge budget massive production six one hour international tv episodes there was safety in numbers there were over 20 film crew i didn't risk my life once i was looked after it was still pretty mad in terms of the stuff that we were doing kung fu and shaolin temple scuba diving the great war helicopter above it wrestling the 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 mongolians at mongolian wrestling you know, going to the Rainbow Mountains, Camelback through the desert, you know, epic stuff. And I think that's where ultimately I've been trying to get it to. Mm. It's not that I've enjoyed risking my life. And especially at the times I, I, 
I hated it. It was only whether I, it was only when I overcame it that I was like fucking hell. I've learned so much about myself, and now my stories are, are going on to provide inspiration. And not only that, with the expeditions that I've done, what not a lot of people do know is with Mongolia, I actually raised funds for the Red Cross. But I was also raising awareness for climate change and the effects that it has on the nomadic way of life. Wow, man. With Madagascar, I was raising awareness and I actually became ambassador for the country, um, for the tourism of Madagascar. And I raised awareness for the Lima Network Conservation that has 60 organizations on the ground helping to protect and preserve all the unique biodiversity. 80% of all plant life and wildlife on the island is found nowhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And then with the Yangtze, I partnered with the WWF, the World Wildlife uh, Federation, you know? So I've always been trying to give back and help where I can, whether it's whether it's for humanitarian reasons, uh, charity reasons, uh, reasons, wildlife reasons. And again, w- even with Madagascar taking a real negative of catching malaria, but overcoming it, clearing it fully out of my system, I then became ambassador for Malaria No More UK and I was able to speak in Parliament addressing the UK government to increase their fund into the global fund by 20%, which is as a joint effort, we succeeded and that went to secure £1.2 billion that would help to save over 8 million lives and cases from malaria in the next five years. Right. You know, so it's stuff like that is when I realised if I can do something, like would I go back and face malaria again? No. Would I go back and face malaria again knowing I can be a voice for those who are unfortunate to aff- to be able to pay for the medication to clear out of their system? Yes, I fucking would. I've got tingles running throughout my body right now. <laughs> I've, um, I, you ask my wife, she'll say I've got a massive ego. <laughs> I've, got, <laughs> I've got a big ego and I like me and I'm proud of me. Yeah. And, and I think I, you've got to have an ego. To, to some extent also to get to where you're trying to get to and to get to where you've been and what you've achieved, you know? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And um, I, I, I like me. I, I back me. I think I am good. I think I'm a good person. I've done yeah. a lot in my life. And I think I'm a very, very good man and I aspire to be a better man every single day. I'm trying every single day to grow and become bigger, better, stronger, mostly physically, spiritually. I sit in front of you, a very humbled man, I sit in front of you very inspired and I'm looking at you thinking, I want to be more like you. Oh, man. And I don't say that to a lot of people. And, mate, I think you are a tremendous, tremendous young man, 32 years old, that you've done so much already, yet, as I mentioned, you have, this is a passion of yours, I can tell. And our people watching this can see this glint in your eye that I can see, that cat, (laughs) the producer can see, the smile on your face. Um, You're going to, you've already changed the world. Appreciate that. You're going to change the world in such a bigger way. You are half a lunatic (laughs) to do the things you've done. Yeah. (laughs) But yet you're so, so normal and you're so relatable. You're a fantastic speaker. We spoke earlier. You've had no training. You just talk. You've done three TED Talks. Unbelievable. Um, you're a great speaker. You're so likable. You're so relatable. I don't know if you fancy doing this in the future, but I think, wow, like there's a future for in, in politics for you. I mean, doesn't matter whatever party you're with, <laughs> I'm going to vote for you because you're a nice man. I believe you. I trust you. Uh, man, you're a lovely dude. Mate, appreciate that. Thank, Thank you, so brother. Much. I just, I just want to say, man, like I want to wrap this up now because... 
we could be here for, for, for forever and a day and I want people to listen to this and not be too overwhelmed um, we'll have to do a round two won't we a hundred percent mate round two and a round three and a round yeah, four and the rest um, just the beginning where can people find you follow you research you look more at you and you know you've done the big the, the, the China show you, you've done recently uh, that'll be airing soon what is next for Ash Dykes so again I'm on all social media accounts not Facebook anymore as my account was disabled believe mm. it or not for unknown reasons but Instagram is Ash Dykes YouTube my book is Mission Possible Mission Possible Possible yeah yeah and um yeah, the next show, it should air either the end of this year or beginning of next. It will be released internationally. Mm-hmm. But again, once... As of the, now, we don't know what TV network or anything is... Uh, yeah, as of right now, I can't announce dates or channels just yet. Okay. Hopefully on the next show, nice. definitely. Um, but again, you know, I've got lots of ideas. Some potential world firsts. Others are just fantastic TV concepts. Yeah. And as soon as... We've got this trip, this TV series off the ground. I'll be going straight to TV to get these next ones off the ground. But uh, yeah, man, it's been long. It's been, a lot has been done. But again, you know, I feel now we're starting to make waves, create noise, and and it feels like it's just the beginning for me. But what one thing can you just like summarize with someone to go home and go, oh, that one thing, I'm going to try that one thing. I'm going to do that one thing. I'm going to believe in that one thing that we can take away from this episode. Action, 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 action. I think a lot of people can overthink and a lot of people can overplan. I would say don't overstress, don't overplan, just start, you know, act. And I guess the hardest part when you act is keeping that motivation. But I learned a harsh lesson in the in the jungles of Madagascar. And it's when we were stuck, we were lost. Um, and I didn't want to be there anymore, bleeding from everywhere. But I realized at that point, and I know this is a thing now, but I never really understood it until I experienced it, that no matter what you face in life, no matter what you're trying to achieve, you can't always be motivated. You can't be disciplined. So when I was out there, hated it, lost all motivation, but I remained disciplined. So whatever you act upon, expect your motivation to disappear fully. It's about remaining disciplined. And another key fact as well, what set me off traveling in the first place, a quote that I always remember, is whatever you want to do now, get get done now. And it was this quote that I came across, the biggest danger in life is not doing what you want to do now in the bet that you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later. Wow, what a podcast from the lonely snow leopard. Ash Dykes, I salute you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast these last couple of weeks and sharing your unbelievable story. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned something from this great man. Um, there's so much there, so many nuggets of inspiration and hope. And what I love about Ash, like he's able to make his story, which is so unrelatable. He can make it relatable for everyday people like you and I. So well done, Ash. Thank you so, so much. Next week, I've got my mate, Bayo Akinfimwa, the strongest footballer in the world, on the podcast with me, talking about his experiences when he played football in Lithuania. Before Bayo became a massive star in on, on social media and in lower league football, Bayo played football in Lithuania and faced torrid, torrid, torrid abuse. And Bayo opens up about all those challenges all the times he wanted to quit football because it got so much for him and he struggled to handle it. So, tune in next week 
We're going to round up Black History Month here in the UK with Bale Akin Benoit. And remember, when you're going through a tough time, always get back up. See you next week.